Welcome to the Southcrest Live podcast. If this is your first time to listen, please connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. If you are joining us for the first time today, we have been going through the book of 2 Timothy, and we will get back to that next month. But for the month of April, we are going to look through the Scripture, give Easter its due under the um, title of This Changes Everything. And so each Sunday, the five Sundays in April, we're going to talk about just what Easter has meant and, and all aspects of it and what the, how that involves you and me. Today, I want you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. In a moment, I'll begin reading in verse 21. Little Zachary was a Jewish kid. He was having trouble in math. His parents tried everything. They tried tutors, uh, mentors, flashcards, special learning centers, in short, everything they could think of to help with his math. Nothing worked. Finally, in a last-ditch effort, they took Zachary down and enrolled him in the local Catholic school. After the first day, little Zach came home. He had a very serious look on his face. He didn't even kiss his mother hello. Instead, he went straight to his room and started studying. Books and papers were spread out all over the room, and little Zachary was hard at work. His mother was amazed. She called him down to dinner, and to her shock, the minute he was done eating, he went straight back to his room and hit the books. Well, this went on for some time, day after day, and while mom tried to understand what made all the difference, finally, Zachary brought home his report card. He quietly laid it on the table, went up to his room, hit the books again. And with trepidation, his mom looked at it, and to her great surprise, little Zachary had an A in math. She couldn't hold her curiosity anymore, so she went up to the room and she said, son, what's made all the difference? Was it the nuns? He shook his head, no. Well, was it the books or the discipline or the structure or the uniforms? What was it? Zachary looked at her and he said, well, on the first day of school, when I saw that guy nailed to the plus sign, I knew they weren't messing around. <laughs> We're not going to mess around. I want to tell you about the cross today. Christians everywhere understand that the cross is the very heart of our faith. No other religion has a cross. When you see a cross around somebody's neck, you immediately assume they know something about Christianity. It's not just a decoration. It is the key to understanding the message of the Bible. It is the most important event next to the resurrection. They go together in world history. And a lot of people don't want to talk about the cross. But on this Palm Sunday, we're going to talk about it. And I hope that you grasp it. I'm not going to tell some of you something you don't already know. You've heard this. However, you don't want to forget it because it's the very crux of Christianity. Without the cross, you don't understand the rest of the Bible and what it's all about. 
And those of you who don't know Jesus, maybe for the first time you're going to understand what the cross really is about. First, we see the rebellion of man. Well, first, let me read the passage in verse 21. Now, but now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. The righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, for there's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of one who has faith in Jesus. First, we see the rebellion of man in verse 23. All have sinned, everyone, and come short, which means to miss the expectation and the requirement of God. All of us have missed the mark. The word sin means to miss the mark, to miss the target. No matter who you are, you have sinned. Don't ever say, well, I've never sinned. That's not true. All have sinned. And we know in Romans 6, 23, that the wages of sin, that sin earned us something, is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Some people don't believe they're as bad as others. But sin is sin. And we're all separated from God. I got amused at a lady, true story, who called the police department and complained. People are speeding on our street in our neighborhood, and they're endangering the lives of our children walking to school. The next morning, she herself was stopped for speeding <laughs> in that neighborhood. And she said, but officer, I'm the person who called yesterday to tell the police about these speeders. And she, he said, well, ma'am, you ought to be happy that we caught one. A lot of times we don't think we're those sinners. I got amused also at Lily and Holcomb in Pueblo, Colorado, who said, at bedtime, I tell our two grandsons a Bible story. One night I said, tonight we're going to talk about sin. Do you know what the word sin means? And seven-year-old Keith said, it's when you do something bad. But four-year-old Aaron, the brother, his eyes got wide. He said, I know a big sin Keith did today. And annoyed, Keith turned to Aaron. He said, you take care of your sins, I'll take care of mine. <laughs> the problem is you and I can't take care of our sin. We know that we're sin, we've sinned. We know that we're separated from God, but we can't undo that. We can't take that stain of sin off of our life. And that's why in verse 24, you see the redemption of Jesus, the salvation the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, verse 24 says, freely by his grace through redemption. The word redeem means to buy back. It means to set free by the payment of a price. It means to purchase. When we were slaves to sin, God paid the price and set us free from our slavery, the price of the blood of his son. When, when sinners trust Christ, God releases us from the chains of sin. We are no longer bound, and it says it is freely 
given without cost to us. Which leads us to the reason of the cross, for the cross. Why did Jesus have to die? Now, this may be the most important question you can ask. If you don't understand the Christian faith without knowing the answer to that question, you don't understand it. The question is not, did Jesus die? And the question is not, why did Jesus die? But the question is, why did Jesus have to die? And when you understand this, you begin to grasp the Christian faith. There's two reasons that Jesus had to die. Now, when you see a documentary about Jesus from a secular organization, they're going to make him look like he was a first century rabble rouser or got in trouble with Rome and Rome killed him. But that's not why Jesus had to die. Jesus gave his life willingly. He had to do it. Not that we forced him, but you're going to see why. There are two reasons that Jesus had to die. The first is to turn away God's wrath, propitiation. Now, if you have a, uh, the the word propitiation is uh, hilasterion, which appears in just a handful of scriptures in the New Testament. If you have a King James Version or a New King James Version or a New American Standard or an English Standard Version, you're going to see the word propitiation. If you have an NIV, New International Version, they translate it as a sacrifice of atonement. But it's the same word, hilasterion, which we get our word propitiation. And propitiation, a simple definition, is to turn away wrath by offering payment. Turn away wrath by the offering of a gift. In this context, it means that the death of Christ turned away God's wrath. In Hebrews 9.5, this same word is used, hilasterion, and it speaks of, the, of Jesus being the mercy seat, or the, the propitiation is the same word for mercy seat, and the mercy seat was the lid on the Ark of the Covenant. Now, 1 John 1, excuse me, 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2 says, My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the whole world. And then in 1 John 4, 10, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. No one likes to talk about God's wrath. There's a lot of anemic preaching today because God's wrath is never mentioned It's all about God's love. Trust me, I'd rather speak on God's love any day than God's wrath. But if you don't understand what you have escaped because of Jesus Christ, you don't appreciate salvation. Because as a sinner, we were separated from God. In fact, Jesus even told us to warn them to flee from the wrath that is to come. 
Now, what is God's wrath? Um, I like the way one Bible expositor explained it. Let me read what he says. He said, surely this phrase, the wrath of God, is greatly misunderstood. Many think invariably of some sort of peeved deity, a kind of cosmic, terrible-tempered Mr. Bang who indulges in violent, uncontrolled displays of temper when human beings do not do what they ought to do. But such a concept only reveals the limitations of our understanding. The Bible never deals with the wrath of God that way. According to Scripture, the wrath of God is God's moral integrity. When a man or woman refuses to yield themselves to God, they create certain conditions, not only for themselves but for others as well, which God has ordained for harm. If God, it is God who makes evil result in sorrow, heartache, injustice, and despair. It's God's way of saying to man, look, you must face the truth. You were made for me. If you decide that you don't want me, then you have to bear the consequences that are already set in motion. The absence of God is destruction to human life. That absence is God's wrath, and God cannot withhold it. In his moral integrity, he insists that these things should occur as a result of our disobedience. He sets man's sin and his wrath in the same frame. Now, to understand this even better, you need to understand that beginning in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, all the way up to Romans chapter 3, verse 20, right before I read, all that deals with is man's sin and holding the truth in unrighteousness. And it talks about how man's sin is just building and building and that God's wrath one day is going to be poured out on sin. But now we get to the place where Jesus takes God's wrath for us. Isaiah wrote, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. Didn't y'all sing about that just a moment ago? By his wounds we are set free. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed, spiritually healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And later in verse 10 of that same chapter, Isaiah 53, it said that yet it pleased God to bruise him. He has been, he had him put, he has put him to grief, excuse me. Bruised, crushed. It wasn't the Romans that crushed Jesus. It wasn't the Jews that crushed Jesus. It was God who allowed Jesus to be crushed on the cross for our sin. He was treated as if he were sin so that the sinner, as you and me, could be treated as if we were perfectly righteous. Did you hear that? Some of y'all are asleep already. I know it's deep stuff. But you need to get this. 
Jesus was treated as if he were sin so that the sinner could be treated as if he were righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him, God made Jesus who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, 1 Peter 3.18. So now the sinner who believes with true faith in the Son of God is saved by the grace of God. Listen to Romans 4.5. But to him who does not work but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is accounted for righteousness. God did all of this because he loved us, and now we're saved from the wrath of God because of the blood of Jesus. But God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ did what? Died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. It's a poor illustration. It breaks down in many ways. But men, have you ever offended your wife? Have you? I see a lot of our wives going... So when a man offends his wife, what does he do? He might try to buy flowers. He might try to buy candy or a card. And when he gets home, the first thing he does is hand that to her, hoping that it will be a propitiation for her wrath. <laughs> now, I mentioned to you in Hebrews chapter 9, that this word hilasterion, propitiation, is the same word used for mercy seat in Hebrews chapter 9. The Ark of the Covenant, which contained the laws of God, the tablets of God, was it was inside. The mercy seat was the lid on top of the Ark of the Covenant, and then on top of, the Ark, of, top of that were two cherubim whose wings came forward almost touching as if to protect the holiness of God. In the ark were the laws or the tablets given by God to Moses. It was in the Holy of Holies. And the mercy seat was where blood was sprinkled once a year on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. The high priest could go in there one time a year. He had to go through all kinds of cleansing before he ever went in there. But he would go in there and he would sprinkle on the mercy seat the blood, bringing atonement for the sacrifice of the, or the atonement sacrifice for the sins of the people for the year. And in that way, God's wrath would be propitiated toward the sins of the people. Now, Hebrews chapter 9 relates the Old Testament day of atonement to what Jesus did on our behalf. It says that Jesus Christ is our great high priest and that he entered immediately into the presence of God in heaven. Listen to the word. But Christ came as high priest of the good things to come 
with greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He is the high priest, but he's also the sacrifice. And his own blood he offered to God, and he's not only the high priest and the sacrifice, but he's the place where God and man meet, the mercy seat. He is the one mediator between God and man. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, For there's one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Jesus Christ. And when Jesus died on the cross, he had never sinned. The virgin birth comes into play. He'd been born by a man. He'd have had a sinful nature just like the rest of us. He was tempted and did not sin. When he died on the cross, it covered our sin. He is the high priest, the sacrifice, the mercy seat. And to call the death of Christ a propitiation means that God's wounded heart is now satisfied because the price had been paid. You see, that's why it's absolutely pitiful that man tries to turn away God's wrath on his own. Some people think, well, if I just join a church. Some people think, if I'm just baptized. Some people think, if I just quit a bad habit, or I strive to do better, or I start being good, that somehow I am going to turn away the wrath of God, the sin. You can't undo your sin. The wonder of the propitiation is that the offended party, that's God, who has every right to be angry at us, the offended party offers the gift the death of Christ, to turn away his own wrath, thus making it possible for guilty sinners to be forgiven. The cross is where God's grace, and grace is giving us what we don't deserve. And God's wrath, the penalty of sin, collide. And Jesus paid it all. That's good stuff. That's life-changing stuff. That's the very crux, the heart of the gospel. That's one reason Jesus had to die. The second reason is to demonstrate God's righteousness, justice. Now, in verse 25 and 26, Paul says that God set forth Christ as a propitiation to demonstrate his righteousness so that he might be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Christ. Okay, now stay with me. I, I know this. Just stay with me. Because God is holy and just, sin has to be punished no matter what sin it is. God cannot look on sin. God is perfect. He is holy. He is righteous. And if he overlooked sin, 
he would cease to be God. Are you with me? For example, can you imagine if a man embezzled $6 million from his company? He is tried. He's convicted. I mean, he's guilty. And he stands before the judge and he says, Judge, I'm, I'm really sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And I'm not ever going to do that again. Now, what would you think if the judge says, well, you know what? I appreciate your apology. You're free to go. Or a man is convicted of rape or murder, some heinous crime, and he apologizes. I'm sorry I did that. I, I shouldn't have done that. I won't do it anymore. And the judge says, well, you're free to go. What are we going to do with that judge? We're going to put him in jail. Because if the law is not taken seriously, there's not going to be any respect for it. And, and so even in this life, a price is paid for breaking the law. And when lawbreakers are set free with no punishment, respect for the law disappears. And the same is true in the spiritual realm. When sin is not punished, it doesn't seem very sinful. And so God's problem was to devise a plan of salvation where he could remain holy and just and still provide a way of forgiveness for guilty sinners that he loved. And there had to be a place where grace and wrath could meet. And that place was on the cross. The paradox of salvation is this, that God is a God of love and therefore wants to forgive sinners. But he's also a God of holiness who cannot and will not overlook sin. So how could God love sinners and overlook their sin? So God sent his own son to die for sinners. And in that way, the just punishment for sin was fully met in the death of Christ that's when he cried out, it is finished. And as a result, those who believe in Jesus Christ find that their sins are gone forever. Your sins are forgiven. It's the heart of the gospel. God's holiness demands that sin be punished and God's grace provided the sacrifice. Isn't it amazing that what God demands, he also supplies so salvation is a work of God from the very beginning to the end. I don't want to close without talking about the results of the cross. Now, this is the good stuff here. It's all good. Romans 3.24 says that we've been justified freely. Justified. It's a legal term means to be put right or without offense or sin. I like the way it's, it sounds, just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. I'm put right with God. Salvation is a free gift of the human race. There's nothing in us. Listen, there's nothing in us to cause God to want to save us. He didn't look at you and say, well, you know what? We need a, a piano player in the church. I think I'll save a musician so they can have a piano player. And there's a wealthy person in the church, and they're going to need money for the kingdom. I'm going to save a... He didn't look at you that way. There's not anything in us that he 
was required to save. So don't ever come to the idea that, God, you're so lucky I'm on your side. And don't you ever think for a moment that you were about half saved before he ever saved you. You've got to be lost before you know you're saved. You've got to understand what this is. God saves people. He doesn't do it because of the potential he sees in us. And the most comforting thing about that is that it's for everybody. No one has an advantage. There is no difference, he says. There was an elderly woman named Betty in a little country town. She accepted Jesus as her Savior. She trusted Christ for salvation. One of her skeptical friends heard about it and was intending to make fun of her and ask her if she had indeed become one of the saints. And Betty said, yes, I have. Her friend said, well, are, are you now an expert in theology? Betty said, I'm no Bible scholar. I'm simply positive that God loves me enough that he'd rather go to hell than have me go there and that God loves me enough that he'd rather leave heaven and die than for me to not to get to heaven but be with him. And her skeptical friend said, is that all you know about it? Can you at least explain what being saved by grace means? That is one of your central doctrines, isn't it? And Betty thought for a moment and she said, Jesus stood in my shoes at Calvary and now I'm standing in his. That's grace. It'd be hard to find a better explanation of the justification by grace. You do not save yourself, and you do not keep yourself saved. Over 220 years ago, there was a man in England by the name of William Cowper. He often struggled with bouts of severe depression. At one point, he became extremely distraught, fearing that he was under the wrath of God. And in his own words, he said these words, I flung myself into a chair by the window and there saw the Bible on the table by the chair. I opened it up and my eyes fell on Romans 3.25, which says of Christ, whom God has made a propitiation through faith in his blood. Then and there I realized what Christ's blood had accomplished and I realized the effects of his atonement for me. I realized God was willing to justify me then and there. I trusted Jesus Christ, and a great burden was lifted from my soul. Later on, William Cowper, thinking about that very time, wrote a hymn. You've already sung it once today. And now I want you to sing the first verse and chorus with me. There is a fountain filled, come on, with blood drawn from Emmanuel. And look what happens. And sinners plunged. 
beneath that Vinoa part, sing it. Who's all their guilty stain? This is you. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood. Lose all their guilty stains. I love what Lee Strobel wrote once. He said, as we say around here, other religions are spelled D-O because they teach that people have to do a bunch of religious rituals to try to please God. But Christianity, it's spelled D-O-N-E because Christ has done it all on the cross. That is what Christianity's about. And, and if you don't know Jesus, I don't know what you're waiting on. God's done it all. But he's not going to force you to follow him. In fact, it goes on to say that, you know, when, when Jesus said in John 3, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. He went on to say, but God didn't send the world, didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world. And he goes on in that same chapter to say the world's already condemned. You see, man is going to face the wrath of God, the, the consequences of rejecting him. Not because God's angry, but because God is just and holy. And the only way you're going to be saved is by faith in Jesus Christ. And the moment you ask God to forgive you and you believe what Jesus has done and you finally get it here and you finally understand that Jesus died for me, you don't have to know all those theological terms, but you say, Lord, I ask you to forgive me. And Jesus, I trust you with my life. Here is my life. I want to be saved. Right then, you are immersed and, and washed in the righteousness of Jesus and when God looks at you, it is just as if I'd never sinned. Justified. That's awesome. I don't know about you, but I spent a lot of my life trying to earn that. You can't earn it. But you can have it right now. Would you bow your heads with me? Thanks for listening and enjoy today's message. 